Amen. And uh, what we'll do, Lord willing, if my plan goes accordingly, is we will deal with the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 19. However, what we'll do is um, we'll go verse by verse. We'll just look at the overview of uh, Armageddon from 11 to the end of the chapter. And then we'll, if we have time, we'll start going verse by verse and touch on certain items. But it just depends on how time goes. We certainly will go verse by verse, though, before we're done. So the last time we reviewed the symbols in Revelation chapters 12 through 18, and uh, all these forces were aligned against uh, God and his Christ, the dragon, which is Satan, and the beast, which I believe is anti-Christian government, especially governments that persecute and uh, seek to destroy Christians or, or keep the gospel down and try to hold it back that way. The false prophet, which is anti-Christian religion, which so happens to be every single religion against the true religion of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace alone. And then Babylon. And Babylon's where we live. It's where all Christians live and have lived. It's anti-Christian society in its lifestyle, in its worldview, and its values. And all these things become important in understanding Revelation 19. And I tell you, Revelation 19 becomes very important in understanding Revelation 20. So that's why we're putting these things together that way. Chapter 17 and 18, we saw the destruction of Babylon. And um, in chapter 19, we'll see the destruction of anti-Christian government and anti-Christian religion. Chapter 20 will deal with the binding of Satan himself. And uh, there also is a, a difficult matter that I will touch on a couple times here tonight without giving too much detail, because it's going to take some detail to get into it. But there is the matter of his being loosed for a little season that we're going to have to discuss and uh, look at the options of what that means and uh, then make our choices that way. But we'll wait until chapter 20 to, to do that and show how it corresponds to Babylon and the destruction of the beast and the destruction of the false prophet. So, with that being said and done, first of all we see the praise to God for the destruction of Babylon. And this scene again takes us into heaven and uh, places us in heaven, and those in heaven rejoice when they see what has happened to Babylon who's been destroyed. And you can find that. This answers the call of chapter 18, verse 20. Just look there for a moment. 1820 says, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles, <coughs> apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So that's what we see taking place here, and uh, that's what is going on. This is the call for rejoicing, and this is the rejoicing. So chapter 19, we'll read verses 1 through 8. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Uh, remember, um, after this doesn't mean the next thing that happens. It means, okay, here's the next scene that we're going to look at. Here's the next vision. And so it's not a chronological issue. It's an issue of says, okay, we're setting the scene, and now we're going to look at it from this point of view, and look at it from that point of view. And that is something that John uses continually. 
After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And you say, well, that sounds pretty chronological to me because um, we're talking about Babylon being destroyed, and now they're praising God for the destruction of Babylon. But, um, and that, that probably is true to a great extent, but it's hard to peg it that way because now we get to verse number 6 here, and it says, Then I heard, and so what happens here would actually take place, I believe, before we're dealing with Armageddon. Or, or, sorry, it would take place after Armageddon. I said that backwards. It would take place after Armageddon. And so but there was another marker there to tell us, then I heard. So that's why I say that. We're not, not dealing chronologically. And I'll be honest with you, it is hard for me to get that out of my head because I'm continually going back to chronological thinking instead of thinking in groups and visions, and this vision, this vision, this vision. It's, it's difficult. Okay, so what happened then? Verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give Him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Be very thankful to the Lord and to John, who often gives us the interpretation if we'll just read just a little bit more. You know, and that's very, very helpful. Well, Babylon, the great harlot, throughout this new covenant age, seeks to draw human beings into lust, luxuriousness, and living for the present with no thoughts of God and eternity, and she's the opposite of the pure bride of Christ, which we see here in the passage that we just read. Hallelujahs ring out from the throng, from the throng that multitude that's crying out that way, uh, for the end of Babylon and seducing the people that are made in the image of God. And I was surprised um, as I started doing some cross-referencing and looking. Um, in the versions of the Bible I looked at, uh, really, the, it's hallelujah sometimes, it's hallelujah. But hallelujah itself uh, only occurred four times, and all four times are here in uh, this particular passage that we just read. But there's a reason for that, obviously. It's in there a whole lot more than four times. It's just kind of hidden to us, uh, because this is the Greek uh, transliteration of uh, Hallelujah, or Hallelujah, J-A-H. So it's praise Jehovah is what it means. And uh, it is found most often in the Psalms. In fact, uh, you know, you've heard of the Hallel, right? Yeah. Hallelujah. That's that's what it is. That's that's what it is. In fact, let's turn there. It's worth looking at just for a few minutes. 
Um, Psalm 113. Now, we're not going to read the Hallel. It's long. Well, it's not, certainly not too long for you to read. You could read it in 15 minutes, I'm sure, you know, um, on your own. But I just wanted to walk you through it real fast uh, because um, it starts right out. Psalm 113, right um, in verse number 1, you know, it says, Praise the Lord, which is why it's called the Hallel. Hallelujah. Basically, it transliterated into the Greek. Praise the Lord. And then verse number five kind of tells us uh, what the first psalm is about. Who is like the Lord our God, who's seated on high, who looks far, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? One of the features of the hallelujah that, uh, uh, or the hallel, that, that really seems to be cool is, even though we don't know it 100% for sure, there's every reason to think that uh, Psalm 113 through what we call Psalm 118 would have been sung by Christ and his disciples at the Last Supper. That's how they would have closed the Last Supper, is singing that. That's what many people uh, believe. I don't know that that's been uh, able to be verified from Scripture, but I believe that it would make sense. That's what they did at the Passover Supper. So the praise originates in heaven. We're back in God's throne room as we see. And uh, we continue on with what the Hillel would say. Look at verse number 7 of 114. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Sums up that uh, small psalm very well. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And then, of course, it goes on from there. 116, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I'll call on him as long as I live. Uh, the shortest psalm of all, 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. That's hallelujah again, you know all nations. And um, then we get to Psalm 118. And uh, this would make sense that our Lord was singing this hymn at the end as he prepares to go to Gethsemane on the cross, uh, because this is a messianic psalm, very, very obviously messianic. But it starts out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love uh, is forever. But uh, we can look, if we go down near the end of the psalm, uh, we see that it is, you know, quoted often as a messianic psalm. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And then, of course, that famous verse, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then he goes on, um, verse 28, you are my God, I'll give thanks to you. You are my God, I'll extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. I really missed verse 26. I meant to read verse 26, too. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ singing that as he's prepared uh, for the darkest event in, in human history? 
but with steadfast faith in God. He goes to Gethsemane, he goes to the cross, and uh, the very words that the scriptures speak of him are on his lips, and on the lips of his disciples, who still really didn't understand yet exactly what was going on, which is interesting if you think about it from a human point of view. So the praise originates in heaven, back to Revelation 19, verse 1. And the reason for the praise, there's two reasons given in verse number two. For his judgments are true and just, for he's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the whole earth. So salvation and glory belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. And this actually answers what the martyrs cried for in 610. Remember? Figuratively speaking, they're under the altar and uh, they're crying out for justice. We don't live in a world of justice very much, do we? Justice is often perverted and everything. It's often justice is not served, and sometimes justice is twisted, and people that aren't guilty end up um, uh, you know, suffering. Martyrs, for instance, certainly did nothing worthy of death. So they cry out for justice, and... Um, Justice will be served, absolutely. Uh, just um, this world isn't always the place of justice. I, I've said many times this isn't the world of justice, of just judgment or justice. And I'd really like to amend that a little bit. I think it is a world of judgment and justice, but we just have a hard time picking out where that judgment and justice falls. And Christ reminds us of that when he talks about the Tower of Siloam that fell on those, those uh, that uh, were there and killed a number of people. And then Pilate, um, or, or it was Pilate or Herod that uh, sprinkled the blood of those Galileans. I said, you think they're more wicked than everybody else? I said, yeah, nay, I, I tell you, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And that does tell us this is not necessarily the world of judgment. But I think as we've gone through the seals and we've gone through the trumpets and we've gone through the bowls, we see there is judgment in this world, you know. And uh, nations rise and nations fall and civilizations fall. And that's the hand of God. Who, do, who brings that about, you know? And uh, this is what God does. And so it's hard for us to understand where we live today. You know, it's very easy. I, I remember a famous sermon was preached by... Uh, one of my favorite preachers, but it, it's not my favorite sermon. It was at the time, but um, it was about the space shuttle tragedy. That was a long time ago. Some of you aren't going to remember that space shuttle tragedy, but um, I think most of you do. And uh, it happened, um, and he made a direct correlation. He said that because the Super Bowl was being played, um, I think right before that or right after that, one or the other. And he said, the judgment of God for the Super Bowl profaning the Lord's Day. Okay, I don't think you can really do that very well and point at one thing and say, that's why that happened. You know, uh, We need to be careful that we don't do that. So, but at any rate, I, I'm sure he would never say that again, but uh, that was a long time ago. Okay. I've said things I've had to just go, whoops, <laughs> wish I wouldn't have said that. So, so we all do that. We're human. Verse 3, 
Her smoke goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. That sounds kind of cruel. No. Enemies of God. The enemies of God, and now the people of God, in their right mind, seeing things the right way from God's perspective, can rejoice that the enemies have been taken down. And so then we have the, the reason the, in verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures, well that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It takes us right back into to Revelation 4 and 5. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. And many commentators, and I think that it well is true, um, that uh, this could be um, one of the seraphs that we talked about that are around the throne. And uh, worship, you know, calling for praise, calling for worship, the four living creatures, the seraph calls for worship. And it well could be, if we want to go a little bit more into that, in verse number 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Verse 9, of course, the angel said to me, told me what to do. And it well could be that that's the, the worship leader. And John is so overwhelmed by the whole thing that he's going to worship him. And he's basically saying to some, he says, well, I'm a man like you are. But it doesn't say that. It says, I'm a fellow servant. And so basically, uh, a creature. I'm a creature. Don't worship me. I'm a creature. And we see that in other places in the Bible, too. So, you know, people are divided on that. It's true, it's divided on that. But it well could be that that's what's happening there. And it would, it would make a lot of sense if it was. Okay. So the last hallelujah is the loudest of all because uh, we see that in uh, coming next after that praise there. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude and the roar of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. So here's the assembled saints and creatures of God that are praising Him. Praising Him for all all that He is and all that He does. I think we can see this as it is finished history. The Lord reigns without an enemy. Let's read the rest of it. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself with, bright, with fine linen, bright and pure. And I think you can see that that fine linen, bright and pure, which are the righteous deeds of the saints, contrasts with the wicked, vile, horrible Deeds of the harlot of Babylon. You know, there's a contrast here. There's the bride of Christ, and then there's Babylon. And they're meant to be put against one another in contrast. Okay. So the Lord reigns. And I could say, the Lord reigns without an enemy. You say, well, we haven't even got to Armageddon yet. You know, what in the world? You know, the, the, final, the final chapter hasn't been written yet. And yet I say, well... Don't read it chronologically. I have to remind myself of that. Because look at verse number 11. Then I saw heaven opened. There's another then. There's another word that uh, tells us 
New vision, here we go. And something else is taking place. So, that, that helps us. The marriage supper of the Lamb. A few things we need to say about that. It's the entrance of believers into the eternal state, the bride of Christ, the church, contrasted with the harlot. And we'll see this more fully in chapters 21 and 22. God reigns without an enemy. Why? Because they've all been destroyed. And the final consummation has come. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, I've done a lot of weddings. And uh, it's always an interesting thing. I have a, a privilege to, to stand up front and uh, you've got the, the groom and the groomsmen come and then here come the bridesmaids and, and they come and they stand where they are and everybody's waiting for the bride, aren't they? And I really noticed that. You know, I, you, you just, uh, everybody's, you know, people may be looking at me up in the front, but that's not what they're excited about. You know, they're waiting for the bride, you know, and sure enough, uh, the music swells, the bride comes down, everybody stares and looks at her and follows her all the way down. You know, the beautiful bride. It's a wonderful thing, you know. And to watch the groom, you know, just be able to stand there and, and watch the groom watch his bride. It's such a wonderful thing. And you can just see the love, you can feel the love. It's, it's an emotional thing, you know. And it reminds me of the hymn that we sing. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. You know, so here's the bride, and that's what she's always doing, too. She's always just looking at her groom as she comes down the aisle, you know. It's pretty cool, you know. Her dear bridegroom's face, I will not gaze at glory, but on my Savior's face. That's what the bride's doing, in a human sense. And that's, that's why this becomes a very powerful, powerful illustration to us of what we're doing. And it's not unusual for God to talk about uh, the fact of, of a feast at the end of these times. It's not an unusual thing at all. Um, but anyway, we, we could go to a number of places. Just think of um, the, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Um, five were wise, five were foolish, five went in and five missed out, you know. And the parable of the wedding feast, go out, and prepare, the wedding feasts have been prepared, go out and invite them to come, and they turn it down. I've married a wife, I cannot come. I bought a field, I cannot come. Go out into the highway and hedges and, and get them. Even, even the people that are despised by society, even the people that are looked down upon, bring them in. So many of us are, are that, right? And we were brought in. Society is not overly impressed with us necessarily. Oh, there are some mighty, there are some noble that are called. But uh, God often calls his own from even the lower portions of society. And in a caste system, you really see this. In, in a country that has a caste system. Here in America, we've been blessed. Uh, we can work hard. We can build ourselves up by God's grace uh, with, with hard work and, and study and discipline and all those sorts of things. It can pay off. But there's some countries and many countries that have been and still are that you can do all of that and you're, just getting, you're going nowhere. You're spinning your wheels. You're stuck down there. You're going to be down there. You know, that's the way it's going to be. And, um, you know, God draws his people many times from the lowly. That's his grace. It's his mercy. And the parable of the wedding feast basically tells us that. And there's a feast that's in Isaiah 25. I won't turn us there. 
because I, I don't want to spend too much time, but you can read that later if you want to. You find the, the feast uh, that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 25, it is, and it talks about uh, another wedding feast too. Uh, so it's a number of places that you can find talking about that. You know. Okay, well, the circles I came from, I came from dispensational circles, know dispensationalism very, very well, uh, was trained in it, and had to untrain myself out of it, to tell you the truth. And I imagine it still sticks to me a little bit, like, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, how many of you were raised or lived in dispensational circles for any length of time? Okay. Yeah, that, that's a lot of people. I noticed people raised in the church didn't raise their hand. Not surprised, <laughs> you know. And that's, that's God's good grace to you, you know. But, um, you know, as, as you deal with it, as you deal with this, literalism and chronology are going to be the difficult things that you deal with in Revelation. Uh, in dispensational circles, um, this wedding feast we just read about lasts for seven years. And during that seven-year period of time, uh, the Great Tribulation is taking place on the earth. So all the bowls and the, the seals, the trumpets and the bowls are being poured out during a seven-year period of time. And um, up in heaven, there's a marriage feast of the Lamb. But you know what? It's interesting about that marriage feast. Not everyone is invited. In dispensational circles, not everyone's invited. Now, now there are those that are progressive dispensationalists that would really have come to a better understanding. That's something that's been going on for at least 20 years, and I think they're making good progress. But um, traditional dispensationalism would say, no, all that's happened is the rapture. That was in chapter 4, verse 1. And so the New Testament saints have been drawn out of the world and taken up into heaven, and they're feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is for the church. Of course, I agree with that. It's for the church. The church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. And all the saints that have ever come and believed. Okay, so yeah, the church, I would agree, but uh, we're certainly talking something different now. We're talking about, no, it's only those that uh, have been saved since Christ's time. This is for the church. Because then it can even go even further. I'm just giving you just a little taste of things there. Go a little further and say, well, the church is the bride of Christ, but Israel is the wife of God. Okay, well, there you go. And, and there's the separation that takes place between the church and Israel. You know, and I've actually heard uh, preachers say, you know, during this New Testament time, God is, is working really hard to get a bride for, for his son. But when that's done, then he'll go back to his wife who he's estranged from at the moment. Okay, so just letting you know some of the things that take place. It comes from a literal and chronological reading of Revelation. So it would be an idea of going Revelation 4 through where we're at right now, all taking place in a seven-year period of time. And when I was in those circles, the one question I always asked myself, I don't want to be really, really critical here. I'm trying not to do that. just trying to explain some of the differences. I found myself asking a question that I think was a really good question because that's what they were always preaching through Revelation. I heard it many times. 
probably three times in my Christian experience I've heard the book of Revelation expounded dispensationally, plus bits and pieces along the way um, fairly recently um, in a church that I visited when I was gone, um, you know, um, and uh, just didn't have a place to, a reformed place to worship and, and uh, heard a, a dispensational sermon talking about the very things that we're talking about right now. Um, the revelation, you know, the rapture's taking place in 4-1. Everything takes place during a seven-year period of time. Uh, obviously, everything I said about the church, other saints haven't been resurrected yet. They'll be resurrected later. I heard a sermon one time about uh, seven resurrections that exist in the Bible. Maybe it was five. Five or seven, I don't remember. But uh, it was a lot. And uh, not a general resurrection. Our Bible talks about a general resurrection. We're about ready to get there. Interesting. You say, well, I don't, the marriage supper of the Lamb, I don't see a resurrection. Where does it say anything about a resurrection? It's coming. Just wait. <laughs> it's coming, you know. But chronologically, it's already come. So really, those are the important things to understand as we read the book of Revelation and to try to understand it. It's a difficult book because it's a book of visions and a book of cycles and a book of um, analogies and such like that. Okay. Well, we do need to maintain humility as we talk about these things and not just be hypercritical and, and uh, against other well-meaning and sound believers in so many ways. We need to be careful about that. We're going to really see that when we get to Revelation 20 uh, because that's where the greatest controversies lie. And we'll try to be fair to each eschatological theory uh, when we get to Revelation 20, but I won't be a afraid to, to give the amillennial view, which is my particular view, and it doesn't have to be your particular view. Okay, just so you understand. You, know. uh, you don't have to be an amillennialist to be part of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, but it is my particular view. And I won't ask anybody else to say what's theirs. Okay, <laughs> so, you know. I mean, Pastor Jeff Massey was here. I will say that. He wouldn't mind me saying it. He's post-millennial. That's what he believes. Okay. So, uh, and <laughs> a lot of similarities, believe me. A lot of similarities. Okay, now let's get to Armageddon. You know, and um, I want to read through it, make some observation notes, and I don't think I'll have time to start going verse by verse, but we'll see. Okay. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Those sitting on it, uh, those, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Let me just say this. You notice many times we've talked about um, heads and horns and diadems. We've just seen that over and over again. Heads, horns, and diadems. Notice this. There's one head here. Okay? One head. Not even talking about horns. You know, heads has to do with distribution of power when you have more than one head, and horns has to do with power, and the diadems are there, which is a glory and, and strength, and one head, many diadems, you know. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the arm so now we don't have to wonder who this is, you know. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Hmm. That's the same fine linen, bright and pure, that's up in verse 8. Notice that? Verse 8. Fine linen, bright and pure. Here it is, the armies of heaven, arrayed in, in um, white, let me find my place, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You, you remember, if you ever hear the, the, the great, um, oh, what is it called? The, 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 the hymn, you know, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Okay, yep. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, and he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God. Well, we just saw a great supper of God. You don't want to be in this supper of God. (laughs) Okay, this is the one you don't want a part of, seriously. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Whenever you see all, you should really look at the context. You know, some people say, well, all means all, that's all all means. Well, that's not true. But when you look at the context, and then you start seeing what all means, this is all, free, and slave. That's everybody. Small and great, it's everybody. So we see a comprehensiveness here of what's happening. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. There's the beast, we see him here now. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image, these two, two had, who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You say, where's the battle of Armageddon? Well, that was it. <laughs> that was it. Not much of a fight. No, but you wouldn't want to be on the losing end. That's for sure. You know, uh, if I was tell, uh, telling the guys, Mike, uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Ken and I were all going down to the pastor's conference yesterday. And we were just talking about a number of things. And we started talking about movies and war movies and what happens here. Well, you know, if we make a movie of um, the book of Revelation, there's probably this massive buildup and all this anticipation for the battle of Armageddon. And then all I hear it comes, you know, and the great battles just takes place. You know, makes for good cinema. This just, just it's over. <laughs> just happens. Who's going to fight against God? How are you going to fight against God? You can assemble, you can do whatever you want. I think really we should take that a little bit more figuratively. Um, I'm not sure that they're saying, okay, now we're going to go fight God, and we're going to win, we're going to 
destroy them, you know. This is just, they've destroyed Babylon. They've destroyed the beast. They've destroyed society. Okay, this, this, this is probably happening during the little season that we'll be talking about. But um, life as we know it has now gotten horrible worldwide, in my opinion. That's what the little season is, I believe. And it's a case of um, just uh, anarchy and terror and horror. And then God comes. And it's over. You know, sword of his mouth. Nobody takes that literally. I, I hope not. <laughs> Nobody would take that literally. Okay. And um, it's not really a battle at all. It's not really a fight at all. It's just gone. They're gone. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Okay. Verse chapter 20. Another vision takes place after all this. But this is a very picturesque sign of total destruction of God eliminating his enemies. And all of his enemies are gone. The beast is gone. The false prophet's gone. Well, what about Satan? Well, we're going to see the beast and false prophet again, and we're going to see Satan. All of them taking their place in the lake of fire, along with all of those that, that follow them. So what we see is the death and destruction of God's enemies. And um, in reality, this is the destruction of all mankind, which is the result of the second coming. How many times have we seen that? In the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. The second coming is great news for us and great news for God's people. And it's the final culmination of all the things that we've hoped for and dreamed for but it's the worst thing that has ever happened to the lost. It's their end, and they're gone. And it's, the day of salvation is over. The day of salvation is done, and the eternal state has come. And that is so awesome that it also, it kind of makes me want to not see the end come. But that's not the way John felt. Because he said, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So there's the attitude that we need to have, too. We, we don't hate people. We shouldn't hate people. And as long as there's breath in someone, we should have hopes of them coming to Christ. I just heard, um, you know, you hear this all the time. People talking about their, their relatives or maybe even their own children. And they're grieved at the, the way that they're going. And what do you say? Just be faithful to them, you know, pray for them, you know, if you can help them by pointing them to Christ, point them to Christ, do all of those sorts of things. Don't lose hope and don't give up. As long as there's breath, there's hope. There's a day coming when hope for the lost is gone and the hope of us has come. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that we do live in the day of salvation. We thank you we live in the day where men, women, even children are coming to you and believing in you and trusting in you and being transformed from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, being taken out of Babylon and brought into the bride and the church universal, the church as a whole, is the bride of Christ, Old Testament, New Testament saints together, enjoying 
eternity together. Not a seven-year feast, but a feast that never ends and continues on into all eternity. Not a literal feast like that, but so shall we ever be with the Lord in his presence. We'll see it in 21 and we'll see it in 22. But we thank you for these pictures. They can puzzle us. They can cause us a consternation sometimes. We can read them too quickly and not get an understanding. But we also need to understand that those in the first century, those in the seven churches to whom this book was addressed, should have had a, a pretty good idea of what you were talking about in a letter that was written to them and meant to be understood by them, maybe not perfectly, and we don't understand it perfectly, but at least we can see the broad outlines and understand where history has been and where history is going. So we give you thanks. May Jesus Christ receive praise and glory in his name. Amen.